Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here, and welcome those of you who are joining online. As Deirdre mentioned, we are starting a new series today. It's really a series on the mission of the church. Um, we usually take maybe a couple weeks to, to highlight this every year, but we're going to take about 13 weeks, and we're going to kind of go through a process of, of understanding our mission of a church together. We're going to take the first four weeks, we're going to look at, at the Bible and, and some of the key texts in the New Testament that gives us some direction on what we are called to as a church, and then we're going to spend four weeks on culture just to examine you know, the times that we're in and how that affects what the instructions that Jesus has given us to do, and then we're going to look at strategy the last five weeks. How are we going to work out what we understand from Scripture and what we understand from culture? So today, we are starting our series with the book of Luke, which is the first of two parts. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and it's a story, and it's about a quarter of the New Testament. I have a friend, she wrote a, uh, she, she self-published a book. She's a pretty smart and insightful lady. And she wrote a book, and, it, and the book is, is an explanation of how she has gone through her life in regard to her uh, major transitions. And as, as I read this book, it, um, I was just surprised on the extent to which she explains her, her need for and her search for order in her life. And she explains some of the, the sources that she has looked to to put order into her life, uh, indigenous cultures, science, uh, literature, Asian philosophies. And she, she explains how these have helped her put some, some, some order into her life. And what she says is identify patterns and associations with, with some of these traditions, some of these sources, and how, how she sees herself in her own life and uh, helps her examine, helps her, helps her plan, helps her see the next steps ahead. And she says this, she says, myths, myths are the stories that we use to pass on a culture's experience and their knowledge to new generations that can help us understand what was important to human society in the past and what lessons were learned in the search for survival and happiness. I like to think then in mythological terms to help me grasp where I might be going and equally important, how to get there. And I can use these concepts for, for tweaking my, my own perspective. And so it, I just was surprised and how, how clear she expressed her use of stories to help put order into her life. And she's, a, she's got a graduate degree in, in science, and she's, she's, like I said, very smart and very intelligent, but she uses stories to help order her life. Ran across a, an article a couple years ago in the Harper's Magazine uh, written by another, uh, he's a prominent science writer, and he wrote an article called The Story of Storytelling. And he says, a story is really a way of thinking, perhaps the most powerful and versatile skill in the human cognitive repertoire. Stories sustain us. They open paths of clarity in the chaos of existence, 
They maintain a record of human thought and grant us the power to shape our perceptions of reality. Stories live through us, and we live through stories. And here again was another, was another science writer, someone who has been trained in and respects uh, science and has, sees it as, a, as an important authority in their life, but again, necessarily seeing the benefit and really exalting the benefit of, of stories in our lives. And, and to those of us who believe in the, the biblical God, this is not a big surprise. It is how God has created us. And not only has God created us in a way to think about our lives in the context of stories and to use stories to, to think about and examine and evaluate and order our lives, but God has revealed himself in a story. The story of, of himself in the Bible, which is not a, it's not a simple story. It's certainly not a, a short story, um, and it's a collection of stories. And un- unfortunately, it's a collection of stories that I would say most people that are even familiar with the Bible don't see the coherence in. They don't see the, the unity of the story. They see 66 books or more books, if you are from the Catholic tradition, and that's a, that's a I mean, it's a, it's a, Big book. It's a big book, and the texts and all the various pieces of that book, it's a book of books. Very few of them are very easy to understand. And so, unfortunately, this, the size of this book, the complexity of this book, oftentimes and has um, presented a challenge of seeing its unity that, that really in, inhibits uh, a lot of us from grasping it. And, um, you know, so it's, a, it's an interesting question to ask ourselves. We're not going to explore this question today. But why would God reveal himself in such a complex way? I mean, that's an interesting question. Why would it take so much effort to discover who he is and what he has called us to and what our meaning and purpose is? But again, that's a, maybe another question for a different time. And because of the challenges that exist in understanding the unity of the Bible, I think a lot of um, people that read it or try to read it think of it in a variety of ways that aren't exactly true. It's not a collection of rules. I know people that think about the Bible, and obviously you read people's comments on the Bible, and it's a, you know, a 2,000-year-old set of rules that are outdated and irrelevant. Well, it's not a collection of rules. There are rules in it. The Bible is about 70% narrative, and within that narrative, there are some places where there are rules, but essentially it's not a collection of rules. It's not a borrowed collection of fragments from other traditions to understand the storyline of the Bible, and there is a singular storyline of the Bible. Um, Everything fits into that, and and certainly the singular storyline of the Bible is not a borrowed tradition. It's not a way to control or enslave people. It's a story that provides identity. It's a story that provides meaning. It's a story that provides a direction to find exactly what, what my friend uh, has looked for, survival and happiness, wisdom, joy, and a way to interpret suffering. certainly pushes us to places of suspense. 
That's what the Bible is doing. So the goal of the series, the goal of the series is to see how this story is calling us to shape our lives. So as I mentioned, there's 70% of the Bible that's narrative, but you have law, you have poetry, you have epistle, you have wisdom literature, you have apocalyptic literature, you've got gospel biographies or ancient biographies, and so you have a lot of different texts and types that go into the whole Bible, but really it's, it's the narrative that puts and holds all these various writings together. And Luke's writing, the Gospel of Luke and the, and the book of Acts, are unique in all of Scripture. Luke, in what he is doing in the Gospel, is, is connecting with the Old Testament and the New. Luke is trying to create the narrative that puts the entire Scripture together. That's really what that that's Luke's goal. And so the the reading today was the text of the Transfiguration when when Jesus appears in this altered visual appearance with Moses and with Elijah. But and this this text is, has always um, challenged me in several ways that I'll explain as we go through. But I've, I've, I've always wondered why it seems like it's such a big deal of a text. And, and what is the significance of these two figures, Elijah and Moses in this, on this mountain with, with Jesus and these altered physical appearances? Well, to, to understand the significance of this passage, we have to look at just a few of the texts in the book of Luke, particularly the beginning and the end, to kind of get a, a picture an interpretive lens of, of how to read this transfiguration event. There's something in the transfiguration event that we need to pull out and really what I want to focus on today, but to get there, we need to look at two passages. So the first one is Luke 1, 1 through 4. I'm just going to read it here real quick. And these, these two texts are actually on the study guide that will be posted today on the realm. So Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty, certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the subject matter that Luke is going to write about, he calls the things accomplished among us. Other people have tried to write narratives. Other people, well, they've been successful. He says many people have, have written narratives that have explained all of these things that have been accomplished among us. Um, and, and the category says, just as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So these things have something to do with this phrase, the word, which is the, the logos. He does, we don't get much more detail than that, but he does state some of the reasons why he's chosen to put his own narrative together. He says, I'm, I'm going to present an orderly narrative. I'm going to present an accurate narrative. 
And I've, I've, I've talked to the eyewitnesses. I've talked to the people who were closest to these events. And some scholars even argue that Luke was writing, he was a doctor. He was writing in such a way in, in the genre of what would have been considered technical or scientific writing for the time. And so he has, is very concerned about being accurate, and he's very concerned about being orderly. Now, if there are other narratives, what is, it, what is unique about Luke's perspective that he needs to bring to the table? Were these other narratives incomplete? Were these other narratives somewhat inaccurate? Were there other narratives uh, somewhat disorderly? And I don't think he necessarily is speaking to the other Gospels. We certainly know that, that Luke was basing his Gospel on the outline of the Gospel of Mark. Um, but he could have been writing to a community that had no access to any of these other any of these other narratives. And so this person, Theophilus, is unknown historically. It could be referring to a specific person. It could be a, a, uh, a community of people. The, the word literally just means lover of God. But he's writing to a group of people that have been taught some of these things that have been fulfilled, um, but there's lacking some order, there's lacking some certainty, which has led to a lack of confidence, a lack, a lack of confidence. So he's wanting to build some certainty. He's wanting to build some confidence about these things. And he says, you've been taught them, which and the word for taught there is catechize. All right, so already, whatever the subject matter is, these have become things that are part of a tradition that's being passed down and catechized. Some of you in here have gone through catechism and Catholic or mainline Protestant churches, and that's essentially is a way of orderly instructing people. And so here you have Luke saying, just as we all can affirm, and what my friend and the science writer from Harper's have affirmed, there are stories that we need to be taught in order for us to live in a confident and certain way. There are stories we need to have and hold on to to direct and bring order to our own lives. So we jump to the end. He's going to provide some clarity. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And this is Jesus speaking. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, once in a while you run into a problem with a translation. And, you know, you don't, um, the, tr the English, the modern English translations that we have of the Bible are very, very good. Um, but occasionally you run into these problems. And so this word here at the end of verse 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That term is the same term that we have found in the first four verses of the first chapter where it uses the term, the things that have been accomplished among us. 
the term is the same one. So if, if you're reading in the original language, you would have made that textual connection that the things that he referred to at the beginning, things accomplished, are the, are the, are the same things that Jesus said had to be fulfilled. All right, so if you are a reader of texts, you see those two words and you see, oh, he's brought closure to his narrative. We know that the things that Luke is writing about are the things that Jesus did to fulfill the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is a reference to the entire Old Testament. So we can look at the, what I think it's 35 books in the Old Testament, and it is a, it is a heavy read to get through them. And certainly after the days that it takes to read them, or months, or maybe even years, if you ever do read all 35 of those books, it's certainly difficult to come away with, a, with an understanding of what the main idea is. But here, Luke, what Luke is saying, what Luke is saying is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the things in the entire Old Testament. Now, some people think of the Old Testament, or this idea of being fulfilled, is that Jesus followed all the rules and all the laws. So if you think of the Old Testament as just a body of rules, oh, then Jesus perfectly obeyed all the rules. It's not what, that's not what the text is saying. That's not what it means that Jesus fulfilled and accomplished the law, prophets, and psalms. Now, some people also think, or may, not necessarily also, but some people think that this means that there's, there's a, there are random stories in the Old Testament, and there's the big story of the nation of Israel, and along these, this big story of the nation of Israel, the family of Abraham that eventually came Israel, and these other random stories, that there are some, some sprinkles of prophecies about Jesus in there, and that Jesus then fulfilled all these sprinkles of prophecies. He did fulfill the prophecies, but Jesus isn't this um, subject matter or theme that pops up here and there throughout the Old Testament. What he's saying is, is that Jesus is the main storyline. And we don't have to read the New Testament onto the Old Testament to see that Jesus is the main storyline. We don't need the New to interpret the Old. In fact, the Old Testament has more information about Jesus Christ than the New Testament does. It just doesn't call him Jesus yet. And so what Luke is showing is that this, this person that all of the Old Testament has been writing about is Jesus, is Jesus, and that it was its primary intent, and now the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the law, the prophets and the Psalms, and the Psalms are a way of referring to all of the other writings, the wisdom literature and the, the other literature of the, of the Old Testament that doesn't fit into the law and the prophets. Jesus is this fulfillment. Jesus is the primary storyline. And so when we are looking to order and direct and evaluate our lives, we see it in this bigger story of the revelation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so those are the bookends to the Gospel of Luke, and it ends in a way that's also going to introduce the book of Acts, which we'll do next week. So now we come back to the transfiguration. And like I said, 
for years I struggled with this passage because I just, I just couldn't figure out what, what the, why these two people, what's going on, um, and why is it such a big deal? Because I think, um, you know, if, if, you, if you, it's the subject of a lot of commentaries, it's the, it's, it takes kind of a prominent role in, in, in scholarship in a lot of ways. Um, but I never understood what it was saying until I understood who Moses and Elijah was in, the, in the, the Old Testament. Now, I knew who those characters were, but I didn't know their significance with this transfiguration. So in, in Deuteronomy 18, and I, and I believe that, that, that Deirdre in her overview of the Old Testament last week mentioned this, but in Deuteronomy 18, so, you know, Moses was really... Um, the, 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 the leader of the founding of the nation of Israel. You know, the book of Genesis ends with, with uh, Jacob and his sons and daughter in the nation of Egypt. It was about 75 people. And then there's this 400-year time between the end of the book of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus. Um, and that, over the 400 years, there are now a lot more people, and they're enslaved in Egypt. And so God calls Moses to be a leader of these people, and so Moses has this charge. So he's kind of this founding leader, this founding deliverer, very prominent figure in Hebrew history and tradition. And he struggled for 40 years. That original, that original generation was not allowed to go into the promised land because they had been unfaithful to God. They did not believe that God was actually going to do what he said he was going to do. And so this, this story in the, in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers is just tragedy after tragedy, and this man Moses becoming increasingly frustrated and angry with the nation, just as he also increasingly sees them as his people. So he, he's come to a place where these are his people, but he has had a frustrating time. And he says in Deuteronomy, just as he's about to, to die and the second generation is going, going to go into the land without him, he says, you know what? God is going to bring a prophet along who's like me, but different from me in that you're going to listen to him. You're going to listen to him. And then Malachi so the, so the law of Moses, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy, it ends with this statement in chapter 34, after Moses' death, no prophet has ever come like Moses. No prophet has ever come like Moses. And that, it's believed that that was put on there to the end of the book of Deuteronomy when the entire Old Testament Bible had been kind of collected and authored in a way that they had it in one piece. No prophet had yet come. And, at the, and so that's at the end of the law. Then at the end of the prophets, the book of Malachi, it says, I will send the prophet Elijah. Now, Elijah had come and gone and had died. So they're looking for another prophet like Elijah. And that was the, the end of the prophets. And so the end of the law, you're waiting for someone like Moses. At the end of the prophets, you're waiting for someone like Elijah. And so you come to this text, and if you're familiar with that, those Old Testament teachings about Moses and Elijah and waiting for them, then you come to this transfiguration, and all of a sudden it's like, 
oh, Jesus is the Moses. Jesus is the Elijah. Jesus is the complete summary of the law. Jesus is the complete summary of the prophets. And he doesn't mention, you know, David wasn't there on the hill with them, but the Psalms, written primarily by David, David being that king, I will bring a king, David, from your line. And so I don't know why David wasn't on the mountain with them. I don't understand that. But anyway, we won't get into that today. But Jesus is standing with these two. And so you get a sense just from those two men being there that this is the guy that we've been waiting for. But why is he glowing? Why is he glowing? In all three of the Gospels, now the Gospels are known to arrange things a little bit differently as you go from one to another. But in all three of the synoptic Gospels, which are based on the Gospel of Mark, um, right before this passage about the transfiguration is a statement that Jesus says, some of you will not die until you see the kingdom of God. And then you have the story of the transfiguration. I think, it, what, I think what the text is showing in each of the gospel authors is, is showing us is that, is that this, this transfiguration experience when Jesus and Moses and Elijah are, are glowing, their appearances were altered, or at least Jesus' appearance was altered because the other guys didn't know what Moses and Elijah looked like at the beginning. Jesus' face changes. His clothes change. He is made beautiful. He is made glorious and brilliant. We know from Isaiah that Jesus was not an attractive person. He says there is nothing about Jesus that would inherently make you want to follow him. He was a common, plain kind of guy. But here he is made glorious and brilliant. And I think that, Luke, I think that Peter's comment, you know, it says he didn't know what he was saying when he said, hey, let's throw out some tents. You know, throwing up tents would be like, hey, let's build a house here. This is, this is beautiful. This is amazing. And we would like to bask in the presence of this for a long time. It feels like that that's what Peter was saying. I think what the transfiguration is, it's a glimpse into the kingdom of God. It's a glimpse into the kingdom of God, which the Old Testament scriptures had long been prophesying about and declaring that is coming. And then when Jesus came, he said, the kingdom is here. He sat down in, in Capernaum in the synagogue and read from Isaiah about the coming of the kingdom of God. He closed the book and he said, this text has been fulfilled in your presence. The kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. And the vision of Jesus and Elijah and Moses glowing was positioning that. In part of the book that my friend wrote, she was looking for a way to think about the transition from motherhood into old age. And, and some of the traditions that she was drawing upon, the, the third stage, and so it's, it's, it's maiden, it's mother, and a lot, some of the transitions, like, Old crone was the third phase. She's like, 
old crone. A crone literally means old, thin, and ugly. And she's like, I, I don't want that. That's not how I want to story and order my life, old, thin, and ugly. So she, put a, she made a term called beldam from an old French term that literally means beautiful maturity. That's, that's how she wants to see her life. Nobody wants to be old, thin, and ugly. We want and we aspire to beauty and to glory. And that's a consistent biblical motivation. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For Christ is above. And when you set your minds on Christ, when he comes and is glorified, it says you will also be glorified in him. That means made beautiful, radiant, honorable, magnificent. That, that is a consistent biblical motivation. Even though we get more ugly when we get older, Ephesians chapter 5, in terms of how it speaks about Jesus and his relationship with the church being similar to that of a husband and as a wife, as their relationship grows more unified and loving, there's a beauty scene, there's a beauty scene in a marriage that goes well beyond the physical appearances. And that's, that's the vision that Jesus has for us as a, as a people, is that the older we get and our bodies will be decaying, the more alive we actually become. But, but that's not the end of the story either, for when the kingdom of God comes, we're all going to enter into this, this life where we are radiant and beautiful. Our physical appearances will be altered. We will have a resurrected body that is beautiful and that is glorious. The transfiguration event ends with Jesus, with, with God saying, he, first of all, he comes in a cloud, Okay, which is also in reference to God leading the people of Israel through the wilderness in a cloud by day. And so this cloud comes, it descends upon them, and he says, listen to him, listen to him. Listen to him. Just like Moses said, you will listen to him. So the history of God's people has come to fulfill, not just a narrative, not just a story, but the history. So in actuality, and the story has also come to completion. So here we have a, a real story and a real people that has come to its fulfillment, envisioned here in this, in this transfiguration. And as we conclude here, it's, it's, it's strange what they were talking about. So here they are, they're radiant, they're beautiful, these three people. God has descended upon them, and what are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus' death. It's not typically the subject matter that you think of when you think of glory, when you think of beauty, when you think of a grand vision for your life. They're sitting here talking about Jesus' death. Now, if you're, if you're familiar with Jesus and the idea, you know, and you know, he, yes, he died on the cross, yes, he resurrected from the dead, but, but if you think of him as a man, and if you haven't figured out all of that stuff yet, like the disciples hadn't, you know, Jesus was a man. And here you have this man talking about his death, and he is radiant. 
It's not a depressing conversation. It's not an anxiety-filled conversation. It's not a fearful conversation. It's a conversation of glory about his death. So in conclusion, I think if we're, gonna, if we're looking for a story to order our lives, I think that it needs to have within it some way of interpreting suffering, some way of interpreting fear, and some way of interpreting death that doesn't bury us. That doesn't bury us. It doesn't tell us to avoid it, but it tells us how to order our lives around suffering, the fear of suffering, and ultimately death and the fear of death. Luke Ferry, in his book, uh, A History of Thought, says that all of philosophy has dealt primarily with one question. How do we live a life characterized by meaning and happiness when we know we're going to die? And he, kinda, he comes to the end, and he's is a, a well-known philosopher. He comes to the end of the book, and he says, you know, I, there's really no solid conclusion. They, most of the Eastern religions, they tell you to, to separate and to disengage from anything that's going to bring you pain, which means the things that you love. And he says, I, I just can't buy those ideas. And of Christianity, he says, you know what? It's just too good to be true. So we get upset at God when, we, when he doesn't rescue us from suffering, when we think if he's all-loving and if he's all-powerful, why doesn't he rescue us from our suffering? Well, he does. That's really the biggest answer in the Bible. It's the biggest question that it's trying to address. And he provides an answer, and then we tell him, it's just too good to be true. A man who would come and take on the sins of the world and suffer and die for us and then is resurrected so that we could find life in his resurrection? Oh, come on. Really? Well, that's what Jesus is showing here. That's what the story of the Bible is about. See, Jesus' suffering would mean something. Glory for himself. Glory for others who believe in him. And this is ultimately proven in his resurrection in which he came back with an altered appearance. They didn't recognize him at first. And then the message for us and the message that the, that the disciples were then entrusted with. Go into all the nations. And that's where our story picks up next week. How is it? How is it that we as a people can enter into God's kingdom where you can discuss and engage and address faith in glory, in glory, in beauty, in magnificence, where suffering is turned on to its head. It doesn't bury us. That's the story of the Bible. Suffering is a means of glory. And we're going to see next week that we, you know, there's a, right before Jesus left, he says, you know, these people, Lord God, they did not choose me. They did not choose you. We chose them, and we're leaving them here in this world. So the big question is then, why, why is God, why has he left us here in this world? And how is suffering a part of that story for us, since God has left us here? So that's the story for next week. But we leave this story saying that 
that, that, that all of Israel's history and all of Israel's literature have been fulfilled in Jesus in a glorious way. And that's the kingdom that he's inviting us into. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for the, the beautiful transfiguration. Thank you for the beauty of your word. The beauty of your word, Lord God, which, which, which reveals itself in such a way that after some time just becomes so compelling and so true. So God, our, our prayer is that you would help us to increasingly understand this story so that we can increasingly see it live in our lives and us live it out. That's our goal, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would help, help that you would help us uh, see the glory um, in our lives that is for us now, since the kingdom is now, and also for the future. In Jesus' name, amen.